Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Todd Moy on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Freedom Flyers, the Tuskegee Airmen of World War II. Those of you who live in the United States know that we are currently having a debate on whether or how to integrate homosexuals, gay people, into the U.S. military. Some are opposed and some are in favor and the discussion often gets quite hot. Well, we've actually been here before, at least in my opinion, and if you read Todd Moy's new book, you'll see how. It's about a group of black flyers who were commissioned during the Second World War as a kind of experiment to see if African Americans could serve in the United States military in the same capacity as their white counterparts. Again, I say it's not exactly integration, it's a halfway step, and that's really where we are now with integrating gays into the military. We are at don't ask, don't tell, which means they're there and not there. And similarly with the Tuskegee Airmen, they were there and not there. And Todd does a terrific job of telling us how they got from being in segregated units to leading the charge, so to say, to the full integration of the U.S. military, which began under the wise leadership of Harry Truman in 1948. In any event, I really enjoyed the book. It's relevant and interesting, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further ado, here it is. Hi, Todd. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very well. Things are very uh, kind of hot and humid here in Iowa. How are things in Texas? Uh, much the same, much the as same. you can imagine. Yeah. yeah, it's July in Texas. What are you going to do? What, what are you going to do? Uh, I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Todd Moy today, and we'll be discussing his really fascinating new book, Freedom Flyers, the Tuskegee Airmen of World War II. You may have seen the movie with Lawrence Fishburne, one of my favorite actors. I, uh, oddly enough, I thought, I thought I'd seen every war movie ever, and I have not seen the movie, but I, I think I'm going to go see it. Uh, but I have read Todd's book, and I can tell you, you should go pick it up because it will put you in a place and time which is largely gone in the United States now. You will see people saying things and doing things which you can hardly believe. Uh, Some of them are remarkably brave, uh, and some of them are just uh, kind of head-scratchingly stupid. Um, And and I I love books like this because, you know, even though I am an American, I grew up in America, and, and, uh, you know, actually I was born in Alabama, of all places, where Tuskegee is. Uh, But I... Uh, but, you know, I read these pages and I'm just like, I don't know these people. I've, I, I have never met anyone who thought that. Uh, so uh, I, don't, I don't read a lot about um, racial relations in the United States, so it's kind of eye-opening for me. Uh, but still, it's a, it's, it's a terrifically eye-opening book in that way. It really took me to a world that, I, that, that is thankfully gone and, um, and uh, well, at least it's mostly gone. And, uh, and, and so I have to thank you for that. So, Todd, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you, Marshall, uh, for those for those kind words. It's, that world is maybe not quite as gone as we as we'd like it to be. But um, I'm I'm a civil rights historian um, and got into this project because several years ago, uh, in 2000, actually, I was hired by the National Park Service to uh, direct an oral history of the Tuskegee Airmen as part of their development of the Tuskegee Airmen National Historical National Historic Site. Uh, which had just been authorized by Congress and uh, the enabling legislation signed into law by President Clinton, they made the very far-sighted decision that uh, if they were going to develop this, they should create a, a reservoir of interviews with uh, the people who had lived through the experience. So they hired me. I was a, a recent PhD from the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, at that point, I was doing a postdoc at the Avery Research Center for African American History and Culture at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. And I was a, a largely self-taught oral historian, but had uh, sort of moved into the academic oral history community and uh, was able to convince them that I was the person they needed to do this. I hired four other historians slash oral history interviewers who did nothing but just travel around the country and record oral history interviews with Tuskegee Airmen and the the people who were associated with them. 
which is, uh, you know, it's a dream job to, to be able to do that and to surround yourself with such great people. Um, so I did that from 2000 to 2005 when the project ended and uh, made my way from, from there. I should mention that that project was based in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Southeast Regional Office of the National Park Service. Uh, made my way from there to the University of North Texas, where I am now an associate professor of history and the director of the university's oral history program. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it, it is a dream job, I have to say. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm green with envy here. I, I was telling you in the pre-interview, I do... Um, what a colleague of mine calls that old stuff. Um, and so I never get to talk to my subjects. They're all dead and have been dead for a hundred yeah, years. Absolutely. So it just must be remarkable to be able to talk to these guys. Let me ask some uh, logistical questions about this sure. for, for those who are in our audience who are interested in oral history, because this is the kind of thing you can sort of do yourself. How do you find these guys? Well, we worked, you know, because I had the institution of the National Park Service behind me, uh, we had a lot of doors opened to us automatically, but the most important of those was the, the door to the um, the National Alumni Group, Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated. They had, um, uh, this had grown from an effort in the 1970s from the men who had gone through this experience in the war and felt like they weren't getting enough credit for it. They organized themselves into uh, you know a national organization that had grown through the years and was pretty formidable by 2000. Um, it's still very much an ongoing concern. It's not membership is not open only to uh, original Tuskegee Airmen. There are several uh, offspring, you know, sons and daughters of Tuskegee Airmen who are interested. Uh, just people from the general population who are interested in the Tuskegee Airmen who have joined this organization. They'll hold their annual uh, convention next week in San Antonio, Texas. Um, so it's a it's a big, you know, going concern and getting them on our side was, was by far the most Im- important door that was opened. Uh, so we worked with Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated to find people who were verifiable Tuskegee Airmen. And I guess this is a, a, a sidelight, but it's an interesting one. There's a small population of people out there who claim to be Tuskegee Airmen who weren't Tuskegee Airmen. I yeah. guess this goes for, you know, any yeah. any group of people who have gotten recognition. There are always people who want to claim that they were part of that group who weren't. But Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated is very vigilant about sussing out the uh, the wannabes, as they call them. Uh, and so we were able, you know, we had we had this arrangement with Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated. They they gave us contact information for the people that they could verify were original Tuskegee Airmen, and we sort of went from there. Word of mouth went a long way. We found a lot of people through word of mouth. We did publicity for the project, so people might read an article in their local newspaper and say, uh, oh, well, I, I know this guy who uh, was a uh, air traffic controller at Tuskegee. Let mm-hmm. me give you his information, that sort of thing. Um, and we ended up doing over 800 interviews in uh, a little less than five years, uh, 820 something interviews that are now there at the national park at, at Tuskegee. Mm-hmm. Now you recorded them, right? We recorded them all on audio. We did a maybe 40 or 50 video interviews when we could find um, professional videographers mm-hmm. who were willing to donate, uh, you know, studio space and, and technology and everything else it takes to do professional video interviews. But the vast vast majority of these are, are audio. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the professional side of doing oral history. Is there a professional organization for oral historians? There certainly is. In the United States, that's the Oral History Association. Uh, Oralhistory.org, I believe, is the web address. Um, And it attracts academic oral historians, non-academic oral historians, um, people from the history side of the academy, the folklore side of the academy, journalists, and, uh, and everyone else. Uh, you know, from from just about every part of the spectrum you could think of. Um, people who are interested in doing oral history should go to the website and read the, um, uh, what is the document's name? Principles and Guidelines, I believe it is. Uh, Principles and Best Practices, rather. It used to be the, uh, the Evaluation Guidelines. But uh, it's there at the OHA's website, and it's really the Bible for... Um, the, the best practices and in, in the practice of oral history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you get a degree in oral history? There are now a couple of institutions that offer that. There's a the the Columbia uh, 
university uh, oral history program um, now offers an MA in oral history. That's the the really the the birthplace of academic oral history in the United States. Uh -huh. uh, that's the oldest and and biggest and most venerable program. They now offer an MA. Uh -huh. I see. I see. Yeah. Um, and so. Uh, you got into it kind of by accident then, is that right? You were a – yes. I got into it when I was doing dissertation research. Uh, I was a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin and um, was doing uh, a dissertation on the civil rights and white resistance movements in uh, a Mississippi Delta community uh -huh. and realized really quickly that uh, you know I could do all the archival research in the world, but I wasn't going to uncover what I needed to uncover unless I went and talked to the people who had been a part of this historical experience. Yeah. Uh, so I taught myself how to do it. Um, I can admit that now. I never, <laughs> I never had the, uh, the graduate course in oral history that, uh, that I now teach at the University of Texas. Um, fortunately, I, I found some mentors who were really helpful, uh, some people like Jacqueline Hall at the University of North Carolina who um, did, did, did not owe me any favors but uh, were, were very generous with their time and their expertise. And, mm -hmm. Uh, sort of long distance, talked me through it, and uh, I made every mistake you can make, mm -hmm. and and hopefully learned from them, and hopefully am, am a better teacher now because of that. But um, yeah, I, I I just went off into the Mississippi Delta and started doing oral wow. history interviews with um, with veterans of the civil rights movement and of the uh, the white resistance organization, the Citizens Council that had. Uh, Sprung up from the Mississippi Delta. I gotta say, and that just—that sounds incredible. Just truly life-changing. It, it was great. It really was. And and you know, once you get in there and start doing the interviews, uh, you never go back to just you know archival-based history. Mm. I'm I'm a, I'm a traditionally trained historian, and I would never write a book. Um, well, I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I, I I my approach is to um, you know get into the archives. And I don't think that, at least I wouldn't try to write a social history of an experience um, based solely on what people say. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd, I'd get into the archives, and I don't think that oral history is a, is a substitute for archival research. I think it's a complement to uh, archival research and vice versa. Mm -hmm. That's my approach to this. There are, of course, lots of other approaches to it. Yeah. Um, but once I started doing that and, and got the bug, there was no way I was going to go back to just sitting around in dusty old archives like a medieval historian. Well, I mean, dealing with oral testimony is a very tricky thing because I can't remember what I did yesterday accurately. So uh, remembering what I did 30 years ago, that is sure. a truly frightening prospect. I, I don't trust my memory at all uh, about just the most basic things. So but we'll come back, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that, particularly in light of the fact that uh, in, in what is, I think, really a fascinating part of the book – um, and you could write a whole really interesting, I think, magazine piece about this or something like that. The, uh, uh, the, the impact of the film about the Tuskegee Airmen on mm -hmm. the testimony of the Tuskegee Airmen themselves. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm always reminded of the incident in which I was uh, – my mom used to show me this picture of myself when I was – I must have been three or something, dressed up for Halloween. And I always, always claimed that I remembered that, but I clearly didn't remember it. I just had seen the picture. <laughs> and you remember the stories that your family told yeah, about exactly. the picture I, and I don't the circumstances in exactly. which it was taken and no, all that kind of thing. I have no direct memory of that experience. There's no way. Um, so anyway, I, I want to talk to you about that in a second. But let's get into the sure. Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, uh, it's hard to know where to begin, but uh, start talking a little bit about the uh, segregated state of the armed forces in the United States in the 1930s as World War II was approaching. Sure, and maybe we should have mentioned this at the beginning, but the, the Tuskegee Airmen, the term refers to the first African-American military pilots in, in the United States. So uh, as, as you know, war was raging over Europe and it was becoming increasingly clear to people that the United States was going to have to get involved in this conflict, you know, by 1939, 1940, um, despite profoundly isolationist sentiment among the, the majority of Americans, um, President Roosevelt and the generals in the Army and in the Army Air Corps, there was no U.S. Air Force yet. Uh, the, the Air Corps was a, a division of the Army. Um, it was clear to them that the United States was going to have to prepare for this. It was going to get drawn into this conflict. And the generals in the Army Air Corps liked the Air Corps the way it was. It was all white. The only jobs that were done by African Americans were janitorial or security or, or what have you, and there were only a, just a small handful 
of African Americans even in that part of the service. So, um, you know, I, I, I write about this in the book, but the, the romance that Americans associated with flying and just the wonder that they had with, uh, you know, surrounding people flying airplanes is sort of hard to recapture now in 2010, but it was, uh, it was all-encompassing in 1939-1940, and African Americans dreamed about this just as much as everyone else dreamed about this. So uh, groups like the NAACP, uh, historically black colleges, uh, the black newspapers began a, a real push to get African Americans into the Air Corps. This was the elite of the elite. Right. If you can be trained as a military pilot, you're also an officer, and this is a way to get more blacks into the officer corps, this, this thing on top of everything else. So they began a, a concerted campaign uh, around this time, around 1939, to get blacks into the Air Corps, and the generals fought it tooth and nail. Uh, they they uh, leaned on a really notorious study that had come out of the post-World War I review of uh, blacks' service in World War I, and uh, this was called the use of Negro manpower in war, an incredibly racist pseudoscientific document, um, not at all scientific. It hardly even deserves the label pseudoscientific, but it concluded that blacks were scared of the dark and uh, you know, couldn't be trusted with uh, you know, hard technological problems to solve, things like that. And the Army Air Corps was, was leaning on this in refusing African Americans uh, the right to serve in the Army Air Corps. So there's this concerted push to get African Americans in. It becomes a political issue. They sort of force it above the heads of the generals and go to President and Mrs. Roosevelt and, and lobby them hard. And in a lot of ways, it's the election of 1940 in which Roosevelt needed black votes uh, that's, that's responsible for, for blacks getting their foot in the door here. He was He was forced through a couple of gaffes um, to give blacks what they wanted. Uh, there's, of course, a Philip Randolph's threat to march on Washington to bring 100,000 black people to the streets of Washington to demand that blacks get better jobs in the defense industries and that Jim Crow segregation in the armed forces has to be eliminated, all those sorts of, sorts of things, brings pressure on Roosevelt to force him to do this. And his answer was to create a segregated all-black uh, flight training facility in Tuskegee, Alabama, outside of uh, about seven miles away from uh, Tuskegee Institute, which was Booker T. Washington's uh, institute um, there in central Alabama. And it's, it's not a universally popular decision in the black community. A lot of people were not willing to accept a Jim Crow airbase. As great as it is to get these people trained and to get them uh, commissioned as officers and to give them the chance to prove that they can serve their country as well as anyone else can. The price that, that you have to pay for that is Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the NAACP would, just barely went along with this. Um, you know, of course, Tuskegee loved it. Uh, several of the black newspapers loved it. Several of them didn't. It's a real point of contention there in 1940, 1941, when all of this is happening. But in the course of the war, uh, Tuskegee Army Airfield and the Tuskegee Army Flying School become a, a small black city where all but just the very top echelon of officers uh, the, the very top echelon of officers are white. Everyone else is black. Black doctors, black nurses, black dentists, um, you know, black quartermasters, they're, they're running this place. And they're proving that they can do it. And, and by the end of the war, if you, even if you separate the, the combat record of the Tuskegee Airmen, blacks have proved uh, in the Army Air Corps that they can do the jobs that everyone else can do. And it's impossible to ignore that. Uh, and it gives a lot of momentum to ending Jim Crow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the, the argument here is that they were forced to accept Jim Crow at the beginning, but then they used the opportunity to prove that they could do the job, and that momentum led to integration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent overview of the entire uh, story and a well-worth-reading story. Uh, let me, let's take a step back to the very first moment, and uh, let me ask a, a kind of, I, I think a question that will naturally occur to people uh, it, well, why didn't Roosevelt just order the integration of the armed forces? He 
felt like he needed the support of Southern Democrats to keep the New Deal going, um, even even as late as 1940. Um, well, it, you know, maybe we can even take a step back from that. Um, he wasn't an integrationist. Yeah. He, um, you know, he. You would have a difficult time making the argument that he considered all black people his equal, uh, and that he had, uh, you know, what we would today consider progressive uh, modern ideas uh, about race and and about the need for equality. Mm-hmm. Um, but on top of that, he he felt like he could not alienate Southern uh, white Democratic senators. Uh, especially who, you know, just were not going to accept integration. Mm-hmm. Were were there were there people in the? Uh, so we know that the NAACP they were calling for basically full integration, uh, and so were I think this needs to be mentioned the editors of this very large network of uh, black urban newspapers that is mm-hmm. now I think the it's Pittsburgh it's, Courier the it's largely disappeared. I think it's disappeared now, hasn't it? I mean, there aren't these things don't exist anymore. But there was a whole uh, world. Several, of several of them do. They don't wield nearly the the influence they did. But the Chicago Defender, for yeah. instance, is still uh, yeah. still in existence. They, they were they were big and important. I, I just always find that fascinating whenever I come across that uh, that network of newspapers. And so they were for full integration. Were there was there anybody uh, in the kind of um, I hate to put it this way, but was there anybody in the white camp, if there was a white camp, uh, who was in support of full integration of the armed forces at that time? Very few. Um, yeah, about as far as whites went was that you need to give blacks the the chance um, to prove that they can do it. Um, you know, you need to you need to treat them as equals, and uh, in the, in the jobs that you allow them to do, even if you separate them socially. Yeah. Um, uh, the 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 by far the most progressive by our measurements, uh, white and the uh, officer in the Army Air Corps was Noel Parrish. Uh, who was a, a that that rarest of species, uh, a Texas white liberal, and um, got into the Army Air Corps through almost a series of accidents, um, but who just accepted blacks as his social equal, and just on a sort of molecular level thought, you know, any black was as good as any white, and you know some of them were good flyers, some of them weren't, but. The same could be said of whites, mm-hmm. uh, and he eventually became the commanding officer of Tuskegee Army Airfield. And uh, just one of those accidents of history that the the right man was in the right place at the right time, and and allowed this um, this it it, it it was always called an experiment yeah. in the Army Air Forces, and that drove a lot of people crazy, drove Parrish crazy. You know, it's it's not an experiment; it's an army base, but. Um, it, it's continually called the experiment, and and it succeeded because he and and a few other people made it succeed. Yeah. gave gave them the chance to succeed. Yeah, people in the military. My my um, I, I wouldn't say I come from a military family, but a lot. My father and my uncle and a bunch of other people served, and uh, I can tell you that um, they don't like experiments. They like routine. Yeah, yeah they're not yeah, big in the experiment. <laughs> and the the word from the War Department was that the Army is not a sociological laboratory, <laughs> right? The the United States is not integrated. Uh, the United States does not accept African Americans as equals, so the Army shouldn't, and it should not be forced politically to to go out here and do these experiments. So they were they were forced kicking and screaming to do this. Let me turn the question around a little bit. I just asked about whether uh, there were whites that supported full integration. Were there blacks that didn't like the idea of integration in the armed forces at all, that went, so just stridently wanted their own units and said, you know, we'll do this on our own? Um, I, I think it's it's hard to generalize and uh, and make that case, but it's it's much easier to generalize and say that there were blacks who were willing to accept a, a segregated uh-huh. air base. Um, and um, it, maybe integration was a goal of theirs, but it was a long-term goal. And the short-term goal was getting blacks into the armed forces, and, right. and they very practically thought, uh, you know, if if this is the way we have to do it, it's the way we'll do it. But this this goal is is more important than you know a sort of principle like mm-hmm. integration. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess one thing that I was interested in, having read a little bit about uh, b- both um, uh, black units in the Civil War and black units in World War One, you mentioned this study that said that the black units in World War One had performed poorly, but I think in the living memory of a lot of people at the time, they knew that wasn't true. Um, were there people that pointed this experience and said, look, we are, we've done this experiment, we've run this, and uh, it worked? Yeah, there there absolutely were, um, but they they were almost all African-American, and it was all too easy for 
whites to just ignore that. Mm -hmm. uh, there were very few whites in power who were willing to say that uh, African Americans had performed well in World War One and uh, had proven they could do anything whites could do, and, and that segregation was inefficient for that reason, and we should get rid of it uh, for for whatever reason. Um, and there are all sorts of you know yeah. complex reasons why whites have felt it necessary to treat blacks as inferior over the years, but um, uh, but that was that was the case in the lead up to World War Two. So uh, let's let's move on to the nuts and bolts of putting this unit together. Uh, now, of course, when you uh, want to put together an ordinary um, unit in the military, you just issue a call, and the recruiting officers can go do their work. Uh, but how, how did they go about finding black pilots? Were there any black pilots? There were something like uh, I've, I can't remember the exact number, but fewer than a hundred uh, licensed black pilots in the United States in 1939. And I, you know, I mentioned that as the generals began planning for the war that they knew was coming. Uh, the, the war was already out there. They, they knew the United States would have to enter it somehow. They knew they needed more trained pilots. They couldn't convince Congress, which, you know, again, the United States population is, uh, all of the public polls show profound, profound isolationist sentiment among, among the people. So the Congress is not going to authorize, you know, massive uh, expansion of the army and uh, you know, new training programs and things like that, and pay for them in 1939. So they've got to find these sort of baby steps they can take that are going to get them closer to preparation for war. One of those that they take is the creation of the Civilian Pilot Training Program, which is going to um, teach thousands of young men how to be pilots, you know, give them civilian licenses with the idea that you know, when the emergency finally hits, you can then train them up just a little bit more to make them into military pilots. And this is going to uh, take place at college campuses all over the country. This coalition of uh, black, uh, historically black colleges, uh, newspapers, civil rights groups like the NAACP, forces Congress to um, give CPT programs to, I believe it was seven of the historically black colleges. Tuskegee was one of them, but Hampton, uh, what's now Hampton University was one. Uh, West Virginia State University for Negroes was another. Uh, Lincoln University in Philadelphia was another. Uh, so there are seven of these. And um, that creates the, the first sort of cadre uh, of pilots, uh, people who will become you know military pilots. The to, to get into the uh, Army Air Corps pilot training program, you had to, at the beginning of the war you had to have at least two years of college, and the number of African Americans who had at least two years of college is minuscule mm -hmm. in, in 1940. I believe it's less than two percent of the population. Um, so it, it, we're talking about the green of the crop, the Du Boisian talented tenth here. Um, those uh, the entrance standards changed after the war as they needed more and more pilots. Uh, they would let you pass an entrance exam. Uh, so uh, so that changed throughout the war. But at the very beginning, uh, we're, we're talking about just a very small number of people who can even uh, pretend uh, that they're qualified to get into the program, and then you have to meet the military's exacting standards. And you know, plenty of people can learn to fly airplanes if they have long enough. But uh, after Pearl Harbor, everything has to be uh, uh, expedited. Uh, and, and people who could have learned to fly if they had six months training you know, don't have that luxury. And there's a tremendous washout rate, not just in the African-American program, but in you know, the rest of the Army Air Force. And um, what the, the, the real sort of stopper in the, in the pipeline here is the fact that at the beginning, when, when Roosevelt is forced to do this and the Army Air Corps is forced to uh, create this program, they say, well, we're only going to have one squadron of black pilots, which is a complement of you know, 33, 34 pilots. Out of a population of 10 million Americans, we're only going to train 33 pilots. And um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm making sense here, but... Yeah, you are. Uh, the the people who get into this program are 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 elite. They are determined. They're well educated. Uh, they've already 
exploded all of these stereotypes. And once they get into the program uh, and succeed up to, you know, the, given the chance to, to prove what they can do and, and succeed to the best of their abilities, it just begins to wipe away all of these arguments for segregation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Before, we, before we get there, uh, I'm, I'm always interested in the experience of, um, I guess I'd call it regional racial culture in the United States, uh, having mm -hmm. lived all over the United States. A lot of these guys came from um, kind of the upper Midwest and from the Northeast, and then they were, mm -hmm. uh, they were thrown into the Deep South, where they really yeah. did things differently. How did they react to this? Um, it, it, one of the things, one of the motifs that comes up again and again in the book is the train ride to Tuskegee, um, because it's one of the things that everyone talks about in these interviews, uh, especially those who had grown up in the Northeast and the Midwest. They had read about Jim Crow. They knew that it existed. But they had, and, and, you know, it's not as if Boston or Chicago or New York City was a land of milk and honey for African Americans in the 1930s. Um, but they had never been forced to sit in the back of a bus, for instance, never been forced to sit in the back of a train. So when they go to Tuskegee for the first time, they're forced to do that. And it really hits home in a, in a personal, visceral way that it had never hit home before. So they tell these stories about what it's like to be Jim Crowed for the first time. And it's, um, it's, it's striking. It's an education for a lot of them. Um, Milton Henry talks about uh, getting to uh, Alabama and being sent to the back of a bus in Montgomery uh, sometime in the early 1940s. I guess that would have been 42 or 43. Um, and, and having grown up in Philadelphia, he's just astonished that, well, you know, I'm, I'm as good as anyone else. Why would I have to send one part of a bus and not another? Um, and, and he's forced to go to a class um, where he's taught about Southern racial mores wow. and just thinks it's the most insane thing. <laughs> he, he, he says, they're telling me all of these things I'm not supposed to do to the white man. What about the things he's not supposed to do to me? No one's talking about that. Uh, it's insane. And, uh, you know, one of our interviewee, interviewees says, I got to the South for the first time and I thought I was in a loony bin. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a really tough personal education for a lot of these people. Yeah, I imagine it is. So the base itself was, I'm not quite sure how to say this, but it was, the, there were white officers there. It was run by a white officer, right? That is Tuskegee itself. And were, the, were yep. white officers training the black pilots? Or uh, how, how were race relations on the, the, well, the base itself? at the beginning of the war, there were no black pilots to train yeah, other black right. pilots. So, uh, so it, it had to be, the, the instructors had to be white. Um, that's at, at Tuskegee Army Airfield itself. There's also a, a primary flight training facility that's run by under contract by Tuskegee Institute called Moton Field, uh, which is where they learn the real basics of flying. Uh, and, and most, but not all, of the instructors there were black. Uh, and, and most of them had, um, had learned to fly into the CPT program beginning in 1939. Um, but, yeah, they're at the base at Tuskegee Army Airfield. Um, the, the upper cadre of officers is white at the beginning. Uh, the idea is that um, people are either approached or they volunteer for the, for the assignment. Uh, Noel Parrish says that he was promised that if he uh, worked at Tuskegee Army Airfield for a couple of years, he could then uh, take his pick of assignments overseas. You know, he could command a, a fighter group or a fighter squadron overseas. That didn't happen. But the idea was that you, you give whites uh, an incentive to come here, and uh, they will train the first generation of black pilots who will then go serve overseas, and then they'll come back and train the next generation of black mm -hmm. pilots. That was the idea. It didn't always work out in practice, but that was the idea. Mm -hmm. So these guys get trained, and they're, and they're put in a, a, a fighter squadron, and they're, and they're, um, they're uh, I, I don't know the right terminology here, they're, 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 um, they're second lieutenants to start with or something. Now, that makes them officers. Now, if they, if they encounter uh, white enlisted personnel, how is that dealt with, if you see what I mean? Yeah, um, it's, it's very tricky because there's not a, a long history of black officers in the Air Corps that you can, you know, there's not much precedent for this. Um, that was part of the idea about why you couldn't have an integrated um, training facility. Because if you have black officers, they're going to be giving um, they're going to be giving orders to whites. And the expectation in, at the War Department then in the 1940s is that you can't expect whites to take orders from blacks. Yeah. You know that's crazy talk. Um, 
So on, so that's part of why they were segregated as much as they were. And then when they serve overseas, they have their own base. Um, you know, at the beginning of the conflict, when they're when they're finally sent overseas, they the, the first complement of pilots for the 99th Training Squadron trained for over a year um, after they graduated from the program um, because the War Department couldn't figure out what to do with them. But they're finally sent to North Africa and attached to uh, an otherwise all-white uh, fighter group. Um, but they have their own base. You know, they have their own mess hall, all these sorts of things. So there's as little social interaction with whites as possible. Um, all for these very inefficient reasons that boil down to whites shouldn't have to take orders from blacks. Mm -hmm. You know, it ends up with all of this crazy repetition um, and inefficient use of resources and all of this sort of stuff uh, because they don't want to put whites in that position. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess I'm trying to understand this. Usually when a, a, a unit is formed, I mean, I, I teach a little bit of military history here at Iowa, they they dribble in inexperienced pilots and have them follow experienced pilots. In this case, they couldn't really do that. That is combat experienced pilots because none of right. these guys had had any combat experience. Did they did they attempt to do any of that kind of thing? How did they initiate them to a combat situation? Well, according to one of those first pilots who went over to North Africa, the the first briefing they got was, "You boys keep up," <laughs> you know, from the from the experienced white pilots, and you know. Nothing, nothing about you know detailed information about the the enemy they can be expected to encounter or anything like that. It's just you boys keep up. Um, so they're sort of thrown in the deep end. Um, now, after several months of those first pilots uh, being in combat in North Africa and then up through Sicily and Italy, uh, they did rotate back to the states and became instructor pilots. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was what it's interesting because that's one of the differences between the German Air Force and the American Air Force. They never rotated the senior guys out. They just they just sent them up until they got mm. shot down. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. That's why you see these German fighter pilots with two and three hundred kills. They never survive right. the war, <laughs> but right. they get uh, yeah they they get a lot of uh, they they get a lot of kills, but they don't ever survive the war. So they rotate these guys back. So how did um, how were race relations overseas in North Africa and in and in, and in Sicily and Italy? And how did the Black pilots do what kind of what kind of duty did they perform? Was it primarily um, uh, fighter escort, or did they do strafing, or what exactly uh, did they do? They did a little bit of everything at the beginning, um, but most famously, their their role developed into uh, bomber escort, and and this is what they're most famous for. And we've interviewed several uh, members of the white bomber crews that they flew alongside. Uh, we we interviewed I don't know dozens. Uh, of people from those crews for the Tuskegee Airmen Oral History Project. And um, at least they claim 50, 60 years later that the, the red tails, each, each fighter group had you know, distinctive markings on their planes. So to the bomber pilots, it's not the 99th Fighter Squadron or the 332nd Fighter Group, it's the red tails. Um, and there's also a checker tail, or, you know, there's a yellow tail group, this sort of thing. Um, they knew, uh, according to these guys, many years later, and of course there are problems with uh, placing too much emphasis on this, um, but they, they, they claimed that there was a marked difference between the, the bomber escort that they received from the Red Tails, the Tuskegee Airmen, as opposed to uh, the other groups that they received that assistance from. And uh, the Tuskegee Airmen themselves lay that at the feet of, of their commander overseas, uh, Colonel Benjamin Davis Jr., who is another one of these people who is just the right person at the right place at the right time. He's a, a West Point graduate when uh, there are no, uh, almost no other African-American West Point graduates. Um, his father is the only black general in the service, um, and he's just an absolutely take-no-nonsense kind of guy who supposedly told the, the fighters, when they were going out on bomber protection, if you lose a bomber, uh, don't don't bother coming back. <laughs> right? Just go go find another base to, to land at. You're, um, because he knew it would be held against them, and that the conclusion would be, well, blacks can't fly airplanes. Yeah. Um, so the you know, of course, lots of um, lots of bombers are shot down by flak. 
by any aircraft fire while they're under the protection of the Tuskegee Airmen. But for years and years and years, the official line was that the Tuskegee Airmen never lost a bomber under their protection to an enemy fighter. And that was, that was not just the Tuskegee Airmen line, that was the U.S. Air Force line. Um, but uh, as you know from reading the book, and, and people who have followed this uh, in the news over the last few years know, but not everyone knows, there have since been documents uncovered by a historian at the Air Force Historical Research Agency named Dan Hallman uh, that prove pretty conclusively that, uh, and, and you know, they prove conclusively that uh, that some of the bombers the Tuskegee Airmen were escorting were shot down by the German Luftwaffe. Mm -hmm. uh, for years and years, this, the, the story was that we were so much better. You know, we had to be twice as good than the white fighter pilots to be considered as good. You know, we had to have twice as good a record to be considered equal, uh, that we never lost a bomber. And uh, it was a very powerful narrative uh, that, unfortunately, is just not objectively true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one can see how one, how, how you could, well, there's really no excuse for the perpetrators of it, but that one can see how people uh, at the time would um, believe it because, you, you know, in combat you don't see everything. So yeah, well, in the official, in the, the, the official records, the, one of the commendations that Colonel Davis got at the end of the war was that, um, you know, according to the records that were available at the time, your group never lost a bomber. Yeah. Um, so, so the people who told this story weren't lying. Mm -hmm. uh, they were, they were the, telling the truth as they knew it. Uh, it, it, it just so happens that the truth changed based on records that were... Yeah, and it, you know, you have to say, the Germans were really good at shooting down bombers. They, they had, uh, had been working on this for a long, long time. <laughs> they, they'd they had they some were, practice uh, by the time yeah, the they really, yeah, they Yeah, were, they were very good at this kind of thing, um, very experienced. So uh, it was, uh, you know, as they, they were really up against it, these guys, both white and black. They were really up against it. So in any event, so the, the, uh, they, they rotate back to the United States, um, and how are they received? Does the Army attempt to put them on a kind of, I don't know, promotional tour? How are they used by the Army? What happens to them when they come back? Um, yeah, there are some promotional tours, but they're only directed at the black community. Um, it's, uh, you know, there was the Chitlin circuit, the entertainment circuit, and this is somewhat analogous to this. It's, um, you know, they're going to, um, uh, there are posters made, the, the, mm -hmm. the big propaganda posters that look like all the other propaganda posters yeah. um, from World War II that people would be familiar with, but they're only shown on the black side of town. Mm -hmm. um, if there's, you know, some sort of a, a war bond drive that features Tuskegee Airmen, uh, they're in attendance. It's only done, uh, you know, at the municipal auditorium on on Negro Day, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And the white newspaper doesn't report on it. It's it's that sort of uh, situation. But then uh, also the the officers who come back as instructors um, find that. Um, you know, they're, they're not accepted as equals just because they've risked their life for their country. Uh, there are examples all over the country, not just in the South, of uh, you know, horrible discrimination perpetrated against these people who have, you know, are legitimate heroes. They've, they've gone out and risked their lives in the most dangerous way possible and, and come back uh, and continue to serve their country. This happens in Walterboro, South Carolina. It happens in Freeman Field, uh, Indiana. It happens in Selfridge Field, Michigan. Um, so it's it, Jim Crow is a is a crisis for blacks in the South, but racial discrimination is a problem for them all over the country, mm -hmm. uh, from California to the Northeast, uh, and the 1940s. And mm -hmm. and one of the things I concentrated on, and that I hope uh, I'm I'm certainly not the first to have heard about the Freeman Field mutiny, uh, and or, or the first to have written about it by any stretch. But I hope I help to bring attention to this. Uh, the the flying program continued to go so well in Tuskegee, uh, training fighter pilots, and there continued to be so much pressure from outside of the Air Force that there uh, the Army Air Forces at the time uh, that in 1943 they created a bomber group um, and a, a bomber training program at Tuskegee that's going to uh, train up a bomber group, uh, all black segregated bomber group. That group was stationed at Freeman Field, Indiana in uh, 1945, and the commanding officer, Colonel Selway, who didn't consider blacks as equal, didn't want to have anything to do with these people, um, 
just declared by fiat against War Department rules at the time that one of the officers' club on base was going to be was going to be restricted to instructor personnel. One officer club on base was going to be restricted to trainees. Um, and every white on base is classified as an instructor. Every black on base is classified as a trainee. Uh, even though even though this includes some of the people who have already come back from overseas, you know, have have dozens of uh, combat experiences, have right. flown all these missions. And uh, and there's a sit-in. There's a sit-in at the at the White Officers Club. Uh, uh, these Tuskegee-trained officers refuse to go along with this. Um, 101 of them uh, refuse to sign the papers that Selway comes up with and say, I'm going to go along with this base policy. Uh, three additional ones are arrested and court-martialed. Uh, and it becomes a, a tremendous public relations nightmare for uh, the Roosevelt administration. Roosevelt actually dies in the midst of this, uh, and Harry Truman becomes president. But the, the White House can't have this going on, right, especially in, in the North. And this is, you know, supposed to be segregation in the South. But Freeman Field. Yeah. Freeman Field. Yeah, yeah. No, that's not ironic. ironic, is it? Yeah, come on. Um, and yeah, so, again, the political pressure up. comes down. Yeah, the political pressure comes down again from the outside and, and forces this change. Yeah. Yeah, I see. So, um, I mean, it's a very that's a very interesting incident. Maybe you should do a full length treatment of it. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> yeah, really. That's yeah. Other others have. Others yeah. have. Again, I don't want to exaggerate yeah. what I've done here. Really um, others so, have, but it's a it's a really interesting civil rights story within the war story. Yeah. So one of the things I was um, uh, that I was interested in, just simply from a kind of military history perspective, is that. Uh, you know, in the in the army uh, and in the air force, the marines, everything else, they they, they say uh, I know this well, up or out. Then the problem with these guys coming back from overseas with combat experience—that's usually how you get up in the military. But they came uh, back, and there was no up to go to mm-hmm. because there was only one unit. So how, right. how did they deal with people who were going to be, uh, you know, moved from I don't know, captain to major, or from major to what's after major? I can't even remember. Um, colonel. Uh, colonel. Yeah. Colonel, what what yeah. what, uh, what do they do with colonel. these people? It becomes a real problem for them, uh, especially there at the end of the war in the immediate post-war period, because there can only be one base commander. Um, you know, there can only be two or three people directly below him. Um, and immediately after the war, most of them go out. Um, the there remains a a segregated all-black unit. Uh, it's now called the 477th, or is it the 332nd Composite Unit? I've forgotten, but uh, a composite fighter-bomber unit again under Colonel Davis. Um, uh, which after the war is stationed at uh, Columbus, Ohio, uh, Lockburn uh, Air Force Base. And the, the people who were there who, who wanted, you know, lots of people wanted to make a career of the Air Force, yeah. but if there's only one black unit, the, the opportunities aren't there for everyone. So a lot of them have to get out. Those who stayed in remember it sort of bittersweetly for that reason because it's um, – you know, there there aren't those opportunities for advancement. So when when integration finally comes, when Truman makes the announcement in 1948, um, again, it's bittersweet for a lot of people. They have they have been with this group of people now for five, six, seven, eight years in some cases. Um, these are their best friends they'll ever make in their lives. Uh, they know exactly how. The guy off to the left of them in formation flies, and the guy off to the right of them in formation flies. So they're an incredibly effective unit when they're working together. Um, but if they go off to another unit, they have more opportunity for advancement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the burden of integration really falls heaviest on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. It's not as if uh, whites are going to be integrated into this group. Uh, it's that blacks have to be separated and integrated into other groups. Mm-hmm. I know that's a particular difficulty. I want you to, uh, we're, we're, we're uh, running out of time, but I want you to talk a little bit about uh, a topic that is uh, in an analogical way, kind of in the news today. Uh, people mention um, the integration of the armed forces in 1940, was it 47 or 48? I can't remember. Yeah, the announcement's made in, in 48. 48, they, they mentioned this and with reference to And then it happens sort of piecemeal after that. Yeah, they mentioned this with reference to um, don't ask, don't tell, and the issue yeah. of gays in the modern military. Uh, how, how did it come to pass that a uh, – <laughs> and being from Kansas, I know what people from Missouri are like uh, – that, that uh, 
that Harry Truman from Missouri uh, integrates the armed forces. I, I can't imagine that Harry had really enlightened views on these issues, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Maybe you could just, I know it's a little outside the ken of the book, but I was hoping you could uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about that. No, I mean, I think, I think it's fair to say that he grew above um, the, the situation in which he'd been born into um, and, and sort of overcame a lot of the racial prejudices that he had inherited. But, um, but you know, again, he needed black votes. He would have he would have lost the 1948 election if he hadn't had uh, black votes in a couple of key states. And um, you know, the sort of re- realpolitik answer to your question is he integrated the military because he ne- he needed black people to vote for him. There are of course other explanations for this and other variables in play, but um, you know, some people see it as you know, the morally right thing to do, but um, the, the real politic answer is that he needed black people to vote for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I mean, I guess the, the, the question that comes to mind is, in a sense, didn't Roosevelt face the same situation in 1940, and, and he basically balked? Yeah, he, he I, I, I guess the situation was different enough that he could get, a, get away with the baby step of creating the segregated unit, uh, whereas, you know, for, for Truman that baby step wasn't available yeah. that had already been done and, and the, the giant step was necessary. Yeah. So Truman, if I recall correctly, Truman there's did also, this. But there's also by 1948 a, a, a core group of people within the military who think that segregation uh-huh. doesn't work. Yeah. And, and they could care less about the moral arguments. Yeah. It, it, they, they just recognize it as an inefficient way to run a system. Right. But the, but the predominant attitude within the military itself was against integration, was it not absolutely. in 1948? And also the it predominant attitude in the, in, the, in the nation at large. Absolutely. Was it, was yeah, it, was a, it, was, it was a it was a politically unpopular decision. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, certainly among the white community, uh, it was very unpopular among most military officers. Nearly all of whom were white at that point. But uh, the for the in, in the context of the United States Air Force, it's a new branch of the services. It's uh, only in '47, I think it is, that it becomes an independent service, independent of the Army. Uh, it has new civilian leaders, uh, and it has people like Noel Parrish who are moving up through the ranks. He had gone through the first um, uh, it's what is the name of it? It's the equivalent of the Army's War College, where mm-hmm. colonels go off and study and write a thesis. Uh, and this experience is supposed to train them to become generals. He's he's in the process of doing this. He's in the first, I believe it's Air Command Training School, something like that. He's in the first class, and writes his thesis on how inefficient. Um, Jim Crow is for the Air Force, mm-hmm. um, and and so you have people like Parrish who who have gone through this experience in the war and who just want to get rid of segregation. There's at least enough of a critical mass. There's they're in the distinct minority, but they're in important enough positions that they can they can get this through mm-hmm. and make it work. So the Air Force becomes the first of the branches to uh, at least take steps towards full integration. It takes several several years for for legitimate full integration to occur, but, uh, but, but... Yeah, I was going to say, we don't want to... They're the first. Yeah, we we don't want to put Harry on too much of a pedestal, because um, although he did uh, order the... uh, (laughs) He did order the integration of the military... I'm reminded of the phrase "with all deliberate speed" or something, and uh, yeah, it didn't from, happen from very fast. Division. Yeah, it did, exactly. it did not happen very fast. Neither, I mean, neither did the integration of the schools, for that matter. I mean, we tend to forget this. It's not like one day they were all white and the next day they were integrated. It took years for this thing to Absolutely. play out. Absolutely. Yeah, and it was Absolutely. all played out kind of on the ground. I mean, I, I think the history of that may still be waiting to be written, but I, I think. And again, the heaviest lifting has to be done by African Americans. Yeah, no, I think that's, right. that's that's exactly right. But by the Korean War, were there integrated units in the Air Force, in the Army, in the Navy? And there were, um, and by 2010 standards, you know, we might not consider them fully integrated, and we certainly wouldn't consider that African Americans were were treated as full human beings in in every aspect of the service. Um, you know, there's still examples of residential segregation on on stateside bases and things like that, well into the 70s. Um, but but yeah, the Korean conflict is the first in, in which there are at least examples of integrated units fighting together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, I have just a couple more quick questions. One is, did the um, did the Army or the Air Force, the Pentagon, did they uh, did they commission studies of the Tuskegee experiment? And were those studies of any more use than the studies of black performance in World War One? Um, they did in in the course of the war. Uh, they were always comparing 
fighter squadrons combat records against each other and that became a, a real sore point within the war because um, when the uh, the 99th fighter squadron was uh, the only black fighter squadron in the in the Air Corps and it's appended to these other uh, otherwise all-white groups uh, the commanding officers of those groups didn't want to have anything to do with them uh, and one of them, Colonel Spike Momire, uh, was was really aggressive in telling the War Department that these black guys don't know what they're doing, and uh, you need to get rid of them. You need to send them off to do coastal defense off the coast of Brazil or something like that. They're they're uh, you know they're endangering the lives of white pilots and, and combat over here in Europe. Um, so that blacks in the War Department and and Colonel Davis had to fight this really aggressively and uh, had to make the War Department commission a study comparing the, the combat records of these various groups and it concluded that they were, you know, right there in the average um, despite everything else that was going on. And, and Davis actually had to come back to Washington to testify before a War Department committee to basically save, you know, this opportunity for the 99th Fighter Squadron in the, in the midst of this. This is 1943, 1944, they're just having to deal with all of these other extracurricular added uh, activities that, that his white counterparts don't have to deal with. So there's that important one during the war. The most important one after the war is actually Colonel Parrish's thesis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. So uh, let me ask this question. And understanding that it's a, it's a delicate question, and, and I don't know exactly um, how much you want to speak about it, but what, uh, what relevance does this Tuskegee experiment and what follows upon it, that is integration, um, have for our, and for you international listeners, that means those of us in the United States, for our current debate concerning the, I don't know if integration is the right word, but I guess it is, integration of gays into the modern U.S. military. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll speak on that, um, you know, just on my own personal uh, feelings about it, and, and a lot of the Tuskegee Airmen would not agree with this, um, you know, they don't see the condition of being gay as having any comparison whatsoever with the condition of being black. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so they don't think that should be part of the conversation. But nearly all of the arguments that you hear today about why gays should not be integrated fully as full human beings into fighting units are the exact same arguments you heard used against blacks in the late 1930s, um, you know, almost, almost to a letter. Um, and, you know, someday some historians, I guess podcasts will be a thing in the past 40 <laughs> years from now, but they'll be having this conversation. And, you know, at the beginning of this podcast, you said this seemed like such a foreign world yeah. and how could these people have such stupid ideas about race? <laughs> 40 years from now, they'll be having this conversation and wondering about how people in the early 21st century had such stupid ideas about sexuality. Yeah, no, I, I think that... I, th I think, without taking any position on it myself, although I, I, well, I, I could take a position, I think that they should. I'm, I'm waiting for the, I'm waiting for Barack Obama to find his inner Harry Truman, but, uh, the, uh, <laughs> um, and I don't know if he's ever going to do it. But the, um, but uh, yeah, I think you're exactly right about that. I think in 40 or 50 years we'll look back on this and kind of scratch our heads and wonder what we were yeah. we were thinking yeah. because you know the thing about it is is that uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, part of the mistake has to do with lumping people together who just don't belong together. And, you know, uh, it's not like black people form a coherent group, really. <laughs> I, you know, or white people or gay people. I mean, I know a lot yeah. of all of them, and I'm, they're really different among themselves. Um, so it doesn't... We're, we're, we're so willing to, you know, come up with these stereotypes and to think that there's a monolithic yeah, no, I, it's, black it's, experience or a monolithic gay experience or yeah, something like that. It's, sort of, it's, it's really insane. And I, that, my eyes were really opened after... Well, I won't go into the details of it, but I... Um, yeah, I've, I've, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I won't go into the details of it, but I know a lot of people who I sort of expected to act one way, and they started to act an entirely different way. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, and I was like, hmm, maybe I should check my assumptions at that door over there. This doesn't so, fit my narrative. No, not yeah. at all. No, I've sort of given up on that. So anyway, um, Todd, I want to uh, say thank you very much for uh, both writing the book and spending the time with us today. We've, we've taken up a lot of your time indeed, and I want to, again, thank you for it. Let me ask you our traditional final question on uh, New Books in History, and that is, what, what are you working on now? <laughs> I'm, I'm working on a couple things. Um, uh, the, the big project, though, is uh, for the oral history program that I direct here. I'm trying to get a, a 
big interviewing project off the ground on civil rights organizing in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been very little done on um, on the history of, of the civil rights movement in Texas, and and we're hoping to uh, build some momentum there. So maybe something will come of that. Yeah. No. I mean, it, and that leads us to, uh, to people like Truman and also uh, Johnson being Southerners, and given what they did, I, I'm just eternally uh, just fascinated by these guys. I, yeah. I, I, they're really they do not fit your stereotypes. And, exactly. and, and I, I just can't. And you know, I was going to say actually, if I could go back for just one second, this guy, um, and I can't remember his name. His name was Davis, right? Colonel Davis. He led, he yeah. led the group. Yeah. Has someone written his biography? He has written an autobiography. Oh yes, okay. Because that guy has an amazing story. I mean, truly, yeah. Uh, yeah. you can hardly believe it. Uh, yeah, Benjamin O. Davis, American. Yeah, and, and I don't, o. Davis Jr. You should go pick it up because the the the, the thing, just the snip, just the small things that you mentioned about him. Are, are truly remarkable. Like nobody would talk to him at West Point, and he had to eat all his meals alone. Yeah, that guy has a—he's uh, a, a, a brave person. Well, and you, <laughs> yeah. you wonder why he would be so devoted to a country that would do that. I, you know, I was about to say that. The, the, the level of patriotism uh, is and, yeah. and commitment is, was, is pretty I was, astounding. I was about to say the same thing. I was like, it's truly that guy is. Um, I don't use the word hero very often, but that guy is pretty dark. To what he went through. And, and it fits to, the bill. Yeah, it's it's uh yeah, very few people fit that bill, but I think he probably does. But anyway, uh, Todd Moyes, who we've been talking to today, uh, and we've been talking about his terrific book, The Tuskegee Airmen of World War II, and it's based on just a huge number of oral interviews and a lot of archival research. It's a terrific read. It's uh, and it's very relevant, I think, for what's um, for the debate we're having today about um, gays in the military. So, Todd, I want to thank you again for being on the show. Marshall, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely, my pleasure. Bye bye. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Todd Moy about his new book, Freedom Flyers, the Tuskegee Airmen of World War II. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.